Let's open the Scriptures to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5. As mentioned in the prayer, we are dealing this afternoon with the government of the church and specifically the office bearers that Christ appoints and how we are to think of those office bearers, how the Lord Jesus thinks of them and what, uh, how He wants us to regard them. So 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll read the verses 16 through chapter 6, verse 13. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with Him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For, he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right and for the left hand, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. I invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 512, where we have the teaching of God's Word summarized by the church in the Belgic Confession, Article 31. That will form the topic, the focus of the preaching this afternoon. Article 31, we believe that ministers of God's Word 
elders and deacons ought to be chosen to their offices by lawful election of the church, with prayer and in good order, as stipulated by the Word of God. Therefore, everyone shall take care not to intrude by improper means. He shall wait for the time that he is called by God, so that he may have sure testimony and thus be certain that his call comes from the Lord. Ministers of the Word, in whatever place they are, have equal power and authority, for they are all servants of Jesus Christ, the only universal bishop and the only head of the church. In order that this holy ordinance of God may not be violated or rejected, we declare that everyone must hold the ministers of the Word and the elders of the church in special esteem because of their work, and as much as possible be at peace with them without grumbling or arguing. So far our confession. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, last time in Article 30, we began to look at what the Bible teaches concerning the government of the one Catholic Church of Jesus Christ. As her Savior, as her King, Christ does not leave the, the running of the church up to the free choice of believers, much less does He leave it up to the will of civil governments. Rather, in the Bible, the Lord Jesus lays down certain commands and principles for how the church is to be ordered and governed. That's His right as head of the church. And in the Bible, He makes it clear that the church is not to be ruled by a hierarchy with a pope at the top or a king or a royal person at the top, nor is the church to be ruled by the democratic will of the congregation nor is the church to be ruled by a gifted individual who charismatically comes forward and prompted by the Spirit decides to lead the congregation of His own. Instead, what we find in the Bible is that the Lord Jesus wants His church to be governed through the very orderly appointment of men to serve in three permanent offices, deacon, elder, minister. This afternoon in Article 31, we want to take a closer look at what the Lord is doing in setting up these three offices. Why did the Lord Jesus do things in this way? What's His purpose in choosing these three offices? How should an elder or a deacon or minister understand his appointment or position in the church? How should the congregation regard each of these brothers? Is one office bearer of higher authority than another? And how do the men who govern Christ's church, how do they relate to the very heart of Christ's work for the church? How do the office bearers contribute in some way to the gospel of salvation? Well, with those questions in mind, I may proclaim to you this Word of God, the Good Shepherd appoints men to care for His flock. 
we'll see two things. They are to be ambassadors to the sheep and ambassadors to the world. Now, the main point of Article 31 is to describe how Scripture spells out how the elders, deacons, and ministers ought to come into their offices. It, Article 31 is telling us how these brothers come to their offices. And then the first sentence says it in summary, by lawful election of the church with prayer, with good order, as stipulated by the Word of God. So right away, that eliminates any top-down approach like what you find in the Roman church or the Anglican church where you have higher clergy like the archbishops appointing lower clergy like the bishops and the priests. They get appointed to this district or to that church or to that parish without any consultation or involvement of the congregation. What we find in the Bible is quite the opposite. All in all the appointments of office bearers, whenever men are selected to serve as deacons, elders, or preachers, that congregation is very closely involved. The apostles did this in Acts 1. They met together as believers, they prayed together, and then they chose two men, and then they cast lots in that case. In Acts 6, they asked the congregation to choose seven men. And then in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas did this again. They appointed elders, but they involved the congregation. Every time again, the congregation is consulted. The congregation puts forward men, and either some or all of those men are appointed into the office that is required. Some other time, we'll have to talk about the casting of lots. Don't have time for that today. But let's suffice it to say that the congregation is involved. So if there's one principle that stands out in the Scriptures, and that should stand out to us, is the principle of being anti-hierarchical. That's a big fancy way of saying anti-top-down. Things do not get foisted on the congregation in the Bible, and they ought not to get foisted, office bearers ought not to get forced upon a local church. Article 31 says toward the end that all the office bearers are all servants of Christ Jesus, the only universal bishop and only head of the church. We're very clear in this article, Christ is the ruler, Christ is the head, all are to submit to His authority. Certainly Christ appoints men to rule over each local church, but even there, those, those governing office bearers, they, ha they have prescribed limits. Elders and deacons and ministers don't just govern the church the way they see fit, according to their own opinions, but they're always bound by the teaching of the Word of God. The office bearers have to stick to the book, the principles, the commands, the promises, everything that God says. That's why you'll find in our church order a great deal of checks and balances in church life throughout our federation in order to prevent individual persons or even assemblies from accruing to themselves more power and authority than is proper. 
Let me pause and explain something for a few moments about this thing called the church order. Maybe you have heard of it. Maybe you haven't. It's in our book of praise, page 647. If you have a book of praise, you might be interested in just having a quick peek at that. Page 647, church order. It's an outworking of what we confess in Article 31 and 32. And what you'll find there in the church order is a small document. It's not very large. It's a small document of rules pertaining to life for each local church, but also pertaining to life across the federation of churches. And when you page through, there's 76 articles. They're not very long. When you page through them, you'll see that some of the articles, they come right out of Scripture. For example, the article that says we need to have three office bearers in church, deacons, elders, ministers. But plenty of articles are derived from principles of Scripture, not direct commands, like the principle of the equality of office bearers, like the principle that Deacons, elders, and ministers are to be appointed with congregational involvement. And whenever you have a principle, usually, anyway, there are different ways to apply the principle. So, the church order of the Canadian Reformed churches compared to the United Reformed churches might show some differences in application. But remarkably, there's a a lot of similarity if you were to compare them. But I'm just pointing out that these are the rules we've agreed to. These are the rules every congregation in our federation has signed up for when they became a congregation. Voluntarily, never imposed. It's kind of like playing in a baseball league. Imagine a baseball league with 70 teams. We have about 70 congregations in our federation. You all want to play baseball. But before you can start playing together, you have to agree on the rules, right? What are we going to play? Hardball? Softball? Slow pitch? Fast pitch? Lob ball? Any of those are legitimate ways to play baseball, and each of those has its own set of rules. But to actually play in good harmony as part of a league... Everybody has to agree on the rules, and everybody actually has to play by the rules. You can't show up in a softball league with your hardball equipment. Well, this is the kind of document we have in the church order. Our church federation in that respect is kind of like a league where we have a number of agreed-upon rules. It's not an unchangeable rule book, just like you could change the rules of of baseball in your baseball league if everybody, if the majority at least, wanted to. There are certainly biblical principles at work beneath these rules, but as I mentioned, sometimes those principles can be applied differently, and at a certain moment, the churches might think, you know, it actually would be better in our circumstances to apply the principle differently in this manner. Let's do things this way. And any church can propose such a change, and if there's a broad agreement in the churches which would come up then at General Synod, then that change would be made. And at our last General Synod, we made such a change, just a little one. But the point is, it's a changeable rule book. It's not the rules or the law of the Medes and the Persians. And maybe it's good for a moment to just clear up some misunderstanding about General Synod uh, or classes. Sometimes, if you've never been to one of these assemblies, 
They can seem quite remote. And sometimes people think that a classis is, is a higher authority. We've got a consistory here locally, and then you've got classes, some people think, and then above that you've got general synod. And some even have the idea that there is a group of men somewhere called a general synod or the general synod. And this group of men meets from time to time, and there's another group of men called the classes, and they meet from time to time, and their judgments at, at the classes seem to carry more weight than those of the local elders. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that's just absolutely not true. And if you read through the church order, you can see it for yourself. The kind of things, those kind of things where you have the top-down permanent bodies, that goes on in the Anglican Church and the Roman Catholic Church with their bishops and their cardinals, but it does not go on in Reformed churches. This thing called a classis, it's not even a permanent body. You know what a classis is? It's just a temporary meeting of the local churches, the, the churches in a local area. So in our area, we're Classis, Ontario West. We have eight churches stretching from here to Chatham and even into Grand Rapids. Each of those eight churches sends two delegates. We have 16 brothers around a table, each representing their home church. This kind of meeting happens once every three months. Different delegates, I mean, the ministers are generally the same, but there's always different elders. We're going to have the next one on March the 6th. And it's the same concept with the general synod. That's once every three years. We're going to have the next one in May of 2025, the Lord willing, out in Aldergrove. Representatives are sent to that meeting, 12 from the east, 12 from the west, half elders, half ministers, always a different mix of brothers. There's no such thing as a permanent general synod, no such thing as a permanent classis. Each meeting, whether classes or general synod, is given an agenda in advance by the churches. These brothers don't just show up and say, hey, what are we going to talk about today? No, no, they've got an agenda in advance. They're sent there by the churches to talk about certain topics in the churches. At classes, for example, we talk about, the classes delegates will talk about church discipline cases when they come up. Or they might talk about mission works in some classical areas. At the general synod, we discuss together, or, or the delegates will discuss together, the, the book of praise because we've decided let's do that together as a federation. That's part of our church order rules. We might talk about relationships with other church federations. And when the meeting is over, whether classes or general synod, the delegates disband. Every church has sent the decisions of the meeting and there is nothing left. There's no standing body. There's no permanent body called General Synod or Classis. In other words, when General Synod meets, it's the church's meeting. It's not some nefarious organization. It's not like the World Economic Forum. I don't know if they're nefarious, but anyway, people think they are. The General Synod is not that. What we have in classes is not a higher authority. We have a broader assembly. 
assemblies to which each local church designates some authority to take decisions pertaining to the broader issues. That's the, that's the reason we do it. It's the broader issues. Local churches agree in advance to abide by those decisions so long as those decisions don't conflict with Scripture or what we've agreed upon in the church order. This is all part and parcel of playing in the same league, so to speak. And yet the only permanent assembly that has permanent authority to rule in the local church, that's the body of elders that you see here sprinkled among us. And those elders are always bowing to the will of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. Well, that comes out too in Article 31 when it says of any particular brother wanting to become an office bearer, that he shall wait for the time that he is called by God so that he may have sure testimony and thus be certain that his call comes from God. That's the other extreme that our confession is warning against and we're careful to avoid, namely having an individual, like a charismatic individual, and you can see that in various church bodies here and there, coming to the fore, leading the assembly basically on his own initiative. That's what the confession is talking about. The Anabaptists back in the time of the Reformation, they thought that was a good way to go. Let the Spirit prompt individuals, and that individual would come forward and, and give a word of exhortation. But the Bible says, let the congregation choose. Let the congregation test, right? 1 Timothy 3, let deacons be tested. And by inference, let the elders be tested so that they are known to be trustworthy men who are capable of teaching and handling the Word of God, and then let them be appointed to their tasks. Let there be outside confirmation of what a person feels in his heart. We're not an unfeeling people, us Reformed people. We don't say that the Holy Spirit doesn't move a person. Each of the theological students here in our midst hopefully we'll be able to say, I feel the Holy Spirit moving me, guiding me toward the ministry of the gospel. And yet, they're all going to wait until that call, that inner call is confirmed by the outer call of Christ through one of the congregations. When a, we had Brother Caleb Koss, was called last fall to the church in Devon, that was when his inner call was confirmed by a an outside third party, so to speak, by the church of Christ. And then he was assured that Christ was calling him to serve as minister of the Word. Now, this matter of waiting for your call, your inner sense of call to be confirmed, that can be a difficult thing. Also among us, even if we're not trying, uh, aspiring to be a minister, there are sometimes brothers who desire to serve as a deacon or desire to serve as an elder in the local church, and that's a good and holy desire. 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, it's a noble desire, says Paul there. It can be that this brother feels qualified, that he feels able to the task, but the opportunity seems never to come. He's not placed on the nomination list. Or perhaps he is on the nomination list, but when the vote comes through, he is not selected. 
And this happens once, it happens twice, maybe it happens three times, and the brother wonders. And the brother and possibly his wife question, and they can become upset, and they can become bitter. They feel like they're being left out, put to the side, prevented from doing what the brother considers himself able to do. And the question lingers in their heart, why am I not being chosen? Well, brothers and sisters, this too is a matter of trust. It's a matter of placing our faith in the Lord of the church. There is no conspiracy in these things. On the one hand, having the ability to serve an office is a, a good thing, but of itself does not yet mean that one has the calling from God to serve in that office. We do not yet know if all the theological students in our midst have a calling from God to serve in that office. We hope they do. We pray that they will, but we don't know until the call comes. Same with possible elders and potential deacons. And just so that you understand, in any Reformed congregation, also in Ancaster, the consistory with the deacons, when they put together the nomination slate, that's always done by way of secret ballot. There's no pressure in the council room to leave off certain names by some kind of conspiracy. And behind it all stands the guiding hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, every step of this process of selecting new deacons and elders, every step is bathed with prayer. We start there in the council room. We bring it out to the congregation. We have it at our final meeting for the vote. We are looking to, we are leaning upon the Lord to guide the choices of everyone involved so that the end result is God's will. And that means that in the end, all of us must trust that if someone's name is not chosen, then the Lord Jesus is behind that. And He has a purpose in that. Perhaps the Lord has another time in mind for your service, or it may be that the Lord has another service in mind for your time. But if you should experience frustration or discontent, then brothers and any sisters, lay it down. Lay it down before the Lord in prayer. Spill that out to Him. Surrender the government of the church into His hand and trust that He knows what He's doing. When we understand all these things, it becomes easier to see what an office bearer actually is. We use that expression more often, an office bearer, kind of a, a bit of a churchy term. We don't use it outside of church too much, but Let's try to unpack it. What is an office bearer? Well, we know the word office in the sense of a position. We're not talking about a physical office building, but this is a sense of a position or maybe better, a duty, a duty of service to which someone is appointed. So think, for example, of, of a police officer. A police officer is a person that's given a specific duty of service, namely to uphold the law and to protect the public. 
A police officer never appoints him or herself. A police officer is sent out by the officials of the community with the task to keep the peace and police the population on behalf of those governing authorities. So, the police officer has an office. Well, very much, it's like that very much in the church, only it's the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, who appoints men to a specific duty, a duty of service on His behalf. Each deacon, each elder, each minister is called by Christ through the congregation to serve in these positions of authority and to do so as representatives of Christ. Again, like a police officer will not, when they're in, on duty, they won't approach you uh, with their personal views, but they will address you with respect to the laws of the land. Maybe they pulled you over at the side of the road, then they're going to speak to you about whatever traffic violation may have been involved. They do that by the authority given to them by the government. Well, in the same way, the deacons, elders, ministers, they come to the sheep of the flock, not with their personal opinions, but they come with the promises of God's Word, with the obligations of God's Word. They come with the Word of Christ, and they apply them with the authority granted them by Christ. They don't come on their personal convictions. The Apostle Paul speaks this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. He says about God and entrusting to us, so that's the apostles, and then you understand after the apostles, then the office bearers appointed to uh, govern the churches, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of or for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Ambassadors, that's the concept he uses to describe those who hold office in the church. An ambassador is a person who represents the one that has sent. So we have, a, we have Canadian ambassadors in many capitals around the world. Each of those ambassadors represents the government of Canada in those cities, in those countries. Well, the office bearers of the church are ambassadors of Christ, representing Christ to the sheep, to the flock. Each in their particular calling, elder, deacon, minister, each in their particular duty of service. So you understand that has implications for how, for a lot of things, for example, how the office bearers conduct themselves. Each office bearer has to take great care that what he speaks, how he speaks, how he acts is an accurate reflection of the one who has sent him, of Christ's word, Christ's attitude, Christ's obedience. We have a solemn duty to represent Christ to the flock. Now, to be sure, every believer has this duty to reflect Christ. We are all followers of Christ. We're all filled with the Spirit of Christ, but the office bearer has a double duty because he is expected to lead. He's in a position of leadership and authority. He's got to be an example. 
So, elders, deacons, minister, we are ambassadors to the flock. And just think about this. If, a, if an elder or an office bearer in general uses, let's say, barnyard language with four-letter expletives, speaking to the members of the flock or just speaking anywhere, how does that reflect on Jesus? The way we speak, the manner in which we speak has to reflect the one who sent us. If the office bearer easily gets angered, speaks sharply, has a short temper, is the Lord honored by that? If the elder doesn't listen well when he comes in for a pastoral visit, maybe a home visit, if he doesn't listen well but just talks right over the people he's visiting, doesn't understand their situation, is that the kind of shepherding that would please the Lord Jesus Christ? So, brothers, office bearers, let us all be very, very careful that we reflect accurately our shepherd. But on the other hand, let us not be weak need either. When we act in our offices, we are acting on Christ's behalf, and so we act with His authority. We do not act on the basis of our person or our accomplishments or the level of our holiness. I say this because sometimes Elders feel hesitant to apply discipline to someone who is hardening in sin because they keep thinking, I'm so sinful myself. Sometimes deacons hesitate to give clear, firm instructions to families that are struggling with money management because they may have had their own financial struggles in the past and they have a, a great deal of compassion. They know how hard it is, and so they, they don't want to give that clear instruction that's needed. In both cases, what needs to be said doesn't get said. But my brothers, that is a misunderstanding of our duty, of our office, because we are not there on our behalf. We're there on Christ's behalf. Of course, we should be sympathetic and compassionate. That's how our Lord is toward us. But let the hesitation to give clear instruction, let that hesitation evaporate and let instead clear courage take place. We come to each home as under-shepherds of the great shepherd whose aim is to keep the sheep following the Good Shepherd into the green pastures of forgiveness, salvation, eternal life. We want the sheep going there. It's not about us. Not to, it's got nothing to do with us personally. If it had to do with our personal holiness, we wouldn't even start. If our personal track record was had to be held up, we better go home. Just like the police officers don't pull you over because they never speed. And because they're perfect at all these laws, they pull you over because they've got a task, an office to do. We address people on behalf of Christ. We speak His Word to His flock. 
And it is the good shepherd's will to work blessing among his people. Remember, this is all Christ's idea. Appoint elders, appoint deacons, have uh, an elder set aside for preaching and teaching. We call him a minister. I'm going to work blessing through these brothers for my people. Also, when they apply discipline in a faithful, loving manner. Also, when they hold people to accountability for their financial gifts they've received. If we elders and deacons hold back from our duty, we not only disobey our Lord, we disadvantage the flock. Instead, beloved, we, we need to consider how liberating it is to, to understand our, our role as someone under the authority of someone else, as people who are, who are somebody else's messenger. I'm just here to speak the Word of Christ. I'm not Peter Holfleur giving my personal message to you. That I definitely wouldn't be here. I'm just here as a minister to speak what I find in Scripture, what the church confesses in its confessions based on Scripture and pass it on clearly as I can. That's how the Lord blesses His church. And that, brothers and sisters, is how each of us in the flock needs to receive these office bearers. When the deacons come in, when the elders come in, when the minister comes in, it is as if Christ is coming in what an ambassador means. It's a representative of Christ. So we have to do our very best to look past the person and the personality and all the weaknesses and see standing in the doorway the good shepherd in the form of his messenger, his servant, his ambassador. We might have known that brother for many years. If you've been in Ancaster for decades, and a number of you have, you might know the elder coming to your door. You might have known him since he was a kid. You might not be particularly fond of that elder or deacon or the minister. You might not care for his personality traits. But when the Lord calls such a one to an office, and that one comes to visit us in our homes or we encounter them somewhere in, in church life, then we treat them with the same respect as the one who sent that brother, the Lord Jesus. And if that brother comes with the Word of God in hand and seeks to encourage and seeks to instruct and seeks to guide with the Word, then we listen and we comply, we follow even if we don't particularly like it. We do not let ourselves be wise in our own eyes. Following Christ, serving the Lord, well, that is to heed Christ's Word as He brings it to us also through His messengers, the office bearers. And you know, that requires an act of faith, doesn't it? An act of trust that the Lord really is working through these office bearers at this particular time. So I'm going to ask you this question. Do you believe that the deacons 
and the elders and the minister of Ancaster Church, do you believe that they have been appointed to these tasks by the Lord Jesus Christ? And that he's appointed these brothers for your good. If you believe, then listen to their counsel. Follow their instruction. How can you expect the Good Shepherd to bless you and your family if you close the door after their visit and say, ah, what do they know? I heard what they said, but there's no way I'm doing that. What will the Lord Jesus think of the way you treat the ambassadors that He sends? Would it not be wiser would it not be more pleasing to the Lord to instead get on your knees and pray for the humility and the grace we need to receive such a one as if he were Christ and to pray for the brother in advance of the visit that he would be given the Spirit and the grace of Christ to, to guide us and that we would be given the, the grace and the Spirit of Christ to receive and to listen that together we can seek the unity of the church for which Christ spilled his blood. For church members and church office bearers are certainly representing Christ to the outside world, even as we're interacting amongst ourselves. And that world is watching. We always have this in church life, this sort of two-pronged focus. First and foremost, we are to conduct ourselves according to the will of the Lord taught us in Scripture, and we do that for His glory. That's our number one focus. Clear in Scripture, we are here to serve for the glory of the Lord. But included in that, and also of importance, is that we conduct ourselves in a manner that draws the attention of the world to our Lord and Savior in a positive way. Remember how he describes the church. We are to be a city on a hill can't hide from view a city on a hill. People see a city like that. The church is to be the light of the world. On a dark night, you can't miss the light. And the light is to draw people toward itself so that more and more people come to the Lord Jesus Christ out of the darkness and ignorance of their unbelief into the marvelous light of His salvation here in His church. They should be attracted to the church. Paul writes of this out, outward focus as well in what we read, verse 18. All this is from God, he says, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. Here comes, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. You and I have been already brought in from the world, but God has more out there in the world. God has an eye for the world. God has a heart for the world. God cares for the world He's created, and He's gathering from out of the world a church unto Himself, and one day He's going to renew all of creation and make this whole world new again. 
God through Christ is busy reconciling the world to Himself. How are we helping that goal if we can't be reconciled to our neighbor in the pew? Or if we cannot submit to the office bearer who comes to us in the name of Jesus Christ, how are we helping that task? You know, the world around us, you don't have to look very far, is in disarray, filled with strife. Fighting is in many places because out in the world is where sin runs amok and the devil holds a great deal of influence. But here in the church, it is to be radically different. Like an oasis in the desert, in the church, the message is peace. The message is joy and love through the forgiveness of sins found in Jesus Christ our Lord. The message in both word and in deed is to be the good news of a, a different way, a better way of life, a life where people voluntarily honor the authority that is over them and where authority exists not to tyrannize people, but to care for, to serve the needs of the congregation, where shepherds care for the sheep, a life where people set aside old grudges and renew relationships that were once strained by sin because each individual knows how much God has rescued them from their own sin and restored them to a relationship with the Almighty in the midst of a, of a large world which only knows how to take sides and dig in, let us instead as God's people be known as a, a people who, who pitch in and help dig each other out. Not fighting, but helping. The world does watch the church. Let them see a church governed by gospel principles, by men who love the good news of grace and salvation by grace alone, who want to see the good news flourish among God's people. Let people see a congregation filled with men and women and teens and children that receive the office bearers as ambassadors of Christ, respecting them, honoring them, submitting to them as they would to the Lord Himself. Let the world see harmony. Let them see care. Let them see love. Then we will be that light on a hill. Amen.